Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. you got to figure that we were a British colony, and if you wanted to build a navy, the, it wouldn't, didn't take too long before the British could say, ah, you were building a warship. So you had to convert merchant ships as best you could into uh, uh, fighting vessels. That's naval historian Lou Norton, and he joins us today to discuss one of the American Revolution's most interesting battles on the high seas. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to talk about naval warfare in the American Revolution, through the lens of one of its most noted battles. Our guest today is Lou Norton, a specialist in 18th century naval warfare during the American Revolution. And he's going to share with us today a battle between two ships, the Bonarme Richard on the American side, captained by none other than John Paul Jones, and the British vessel, the Serapis. He'll talk about how naval battles were fought during the Revolutionary Era. He'll talk about why this battle was so important. And most importantly of all, he'll give us a blow-by-blow of the battle itself. This is part prize fight, part historical archival research, and a great opportunity to learn about naval warfare off the coast of the UK. So without further ado... Sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Lou Norton. Lou Norton, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, as I say, I'm a peculiar person for this group in that, yes, I am a historian, and I've written a great deal in that area, but my background is uh, I did my, I have a BA from Bowdoin College in Maine, on the coast of Maine. I grew up uh, in Gloucester, Mass., which is a uh, well-known seaport and fishing port. So the sea was in my blood. Uh, my, my house was only a few hundred yards from the ocean. And then um, I was, a, of all things, a chemistry major up there. I took very little history. Uh, Bowdoin is a liberal arts school, so I have a good liberal arts background and interested in writing. And uh, but I was spent a life as science, and I decided to go into dentistry, which is a peculiar thing. But I uh, decided that I didn't want to have the responsibility in medicine of life and death situations and early morning things. And dentistry allowed you to have a have a life. So I got a degree in dentistry, uh, did a and did that did it at Harvard University at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. Stayed on for two years in the postdoctoral program at the Children's Hospital in Boston. Then I uh, went marching off with Uncle Sam for a couple of years in the Army. I was stationed at Fort Knox. 
uh, as a captain in the army in the very beginning of the Vietnam War. Then afterwards, I uh, got an offer to uh, to teach. So I happened to be in the state of Kentucky, not too far from where I was stationed. So that was the University of Kentucky, and I uh, was in the faculty there for. Uh, eight years, or ten years actually in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and then I got a call to return to England, which was my home area, and I ended up being at the University of Connecticut for the rest of my academic career. And uh, largely there, I did a lot of scientific work in particular, and I don't want to get into into that, but I have a large uh, publication uh, CV, so to say, in science. When I retired, I said, gee... I've always been interested in history, and I have this maritime background. Uh, I think I'd like to go and get a, uh, a master's in history at the University of Connecticut, which was nearby, and they also had a relationship with Mystic Seaport. So I went and did a, a master's in history there and uh, started to do some writing, and people showed some very bad judgment and said, gee, I think we want to publish some of these stories. <laughs> it went on from there. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, um, I, as I say, the, 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 I've been interested in naval history in particular, and uh, it's interesting that the, the Navy in, uh, at that time, there wasn't too much. Our, our Continental Navy was not very, uh, very great, but I happened to uh, run across, as I was writing, uh, doing some research, uh, a memoir by Nathaniel Fanning, who is also a Connecticut person from Stony Connecticut, and um, he wrote a uh, part of this things a memoir about the story, which uh, is the subject of our call today. But it was his life as a first. He started off as a privateer, captured by the British, imprisoned, was released in France. John Paul Jones was looking for some crew members, and he met uh, Benjamin Franklin, and John Paul Jones picked him up and said, how would you like to sail with me? He said, why not, and became a midshipman. He was the oldest midshipman on board, and um, he took part in this battle, and the uh, he relates in the first person uh story of what took place while he was there. And the story goes on about, uh, interesting with Fanning, he uh, got off the ship with uh, with uh, John Paul Jones, didn't particularly like the man at all. He really ran him up a flagpole. And um, he ended up actually uh, joining the French Navy, became an officer in the French Navy because they were our allies. And uh, then he uh, managed to immigrate back to the United States, a very patriotic man. The bad feature of his memoir is that uh, he starts off by saying, I haven't had much education, so it's <laughs> this is what happened as best I could tell it. And it's kind of a, a difficult thing to read, but uh, a, a really an interesting uh, memoir indeed. First person. What was the state of the naval war in 1779? Well, not too much had happened. We we kept losing. We had very very poor uh, fleet in essence. Uh, you got to figure that we were a British colony, and if you wanted to build a navy, the, it wouldn't didn't take too long before the British could say, "Ah, oh, you were building a warship." So you had to convert merchant ships as best you could into. Uh, 
uh, fighting vessels, there were three types of navies. The first one was the Continental Navy, which was very, very small. And then uh, of the 13 colonies, 11 of them had state navies, and they went off and they did some battles. And then the privateers, and privateers were actually the largest of the group because you could actually make money if you captured a ship and had the right documents, you could actually uh, make some money by by your what you uh, had, had confiscated at, uh, at sea. So therefore, uh, that was very popular. But our regular navy was rather rather sparse. A uh, couple of things of interest. There was the Battle of Machias, Maine, which took place in 75, and Abraham Whipple's uh, Margarita in, on Rhode Island in 1775. And uh, 1776, they uh, managed to uh, have a battle in Nassau, uh, first time that John Paul Jones actually had joined the Navy. And then, uh, since you mentioned 1779, that was a disaster because uh, they had the uh, what they call the Battle of Penobscot, where they would try to take a small fort, which was now Castine, Maine, but it was going on Bagadoose in those days. And uh, we lost 44 vessels under the uh, captaincy of Dudley Saltonstall, who was later uh, court-martialed and drummed out of the Navy. Well, of interest, though, during this time, um, there were three men who were doing something which called asymmetric warfare. John Paul Jones, a fellow named Gustavus Cunningham, and Lambert Hicks, who took the war to England, to the shores of England, and did all sorts of raids uh, in the English countryside, and therefore the people uh, were saying, gee, this war is too close. We didn't like this. <laughs> so uh, they were uh, considered pirates in their day, and uh, that was kind of the the biggest thing that was happening about in 1779, that uh, all three men were uh, doing some raids in and around the coast of England and Ireland, etc. Tell us about the Bonhomme Richard. The Bonham Richard was named after uh, our friend Benjamin Franklin and his almanac. <clears throat> but the Bonham Richard was actually a French vessel. It was called the Duc du Duras, and it was 13 years old. It was a merchant ship, and uh, Benjamin Franklin managed to acquire it in uh, February of 1779, and then we converted this into a um, a warship, in essence. Uh, in those days, uh, the difference between the merchant ships and merchant and warships was not terribly great. They all were armed, and sometimes fairly heavily armed. But the difference was a warship was more stoutly built, and usually a little faster, etc. Because it was, you know, purposely built for that. So, um, and its length was uh, about 152 feet long, 60. Pardon me, 40 feet wide and it had a draft of 19 feet. Uh, its complement was oh, about three, 380 officers and men and uh, had a, various types of armament. Uh, it had uh, 28 12 pounders on board, six 18 pounders, which were the large uh, guns, could do the most damage, and then uh, eight uh, nine pounders. Uh, and that is about it on the the, the Richard. It was uh, really not a warship at all, particularly, but it did have John Paul Jones as its captain. It'll be squaring off with a ship called the Serapis. Tell us about that. 
it's squaring off against actually um it's the antagonist which the story was about is a ship called Serapis. The Serapis was launched uh, just before this battle took place. It was launched in 1779, so it was a relatively new vessel in March of that year, and the battle took place in late in September. It was called a Roebuck-class Robuck, fifth-rate vessel by the British standards, and it was about the same size as the Bonham Rich Eyes, a little bit smaller. It's 140 feet and 38-foot uh, beam and 16-foot draft, uh, and it had um, a smaller uh, crew on board, uh, but it was more heavily armed. It had 22 12-pounders, about 20 18-pounders, and 6-pounders. Six, six so it was 50-gun ship as opposed to roughly a 42-gun ship that the uh, Bonhomme Richard had. So and also the uh, the number of heavy guns, the eighteen pounders, was was greater. One of the problems that the Bonham Richard had was that the ones they had on board, some of them blew up during training, so they weren't weren't even be able to be used. Also, um, Pearson, who was in command of this, giving command of this, had been a captain in the. Uh, British Navy for some time. He served in the Seven Years' War, and then he became a captain, a full captain in the uh, British Navy in 1773. So uh, he had um, a lot of experience under his belt versus uh, uh, John Paul Jones, who had his first commission uh, in 1776, and he was a lieutenant, and he was a relatively green uh, naval officer, to say the least. How were naval battles contested in the 18th century? Well, uh, you, don't, you have a bunch of choices. Obviously, you think, ah, you have these heavy guns, and the first thing you want to do is pierce the hull with the guns and somehow uh, splinter the hull and try to sink it. Um, difficult to do. Uh, the, the the ship is going up and down and the waves and the, uh, the, the balls, the aiming is not all that wonderful, so you can't really... If you pierce the hull, you're kind of lucky. The second thing is destroy the rigging of the sails. And this is something which you use a certain type of shot which will cut the rigging and um, pierce the sails, the sails essentially the engine of the, of the, of the ship. Um, but certainly if the rigging doesn't work, you can't sail it too well because you can't direct the sails. So that's something which particularly the, the, uh, the French liked to do when they were in, engaged in battle historically. The next thing is if you were really good, you try to get to the stern of the ship and hit the rudder. In essence, you got rid of the steering wheel, <laughs> so the, the the ship was essentially adrift, and not much you could do with it. And then the fourth thing you could do, the fourth option, was to board. And this is where you come side by side. You throw grappling irons on board, and you have people armed with uh, uh, boarding axes and pikes and knives, and essentially, you know, you try to cut each other up, etc. So, and sometimes you have pistols, etc. Uh, but it, it's it's largely hand-to-hand -hand combat and largely with um, uh, swords, etc. One of the things also happened is that uh, ships really sank from these in, you know, encounters. They would get suddenly badly damaged that they would essentially give up, and the winner would get the hulk, and then they'd take it back and repair it and use it again. Or sometimes the fire would take place, and the ship might be consumed to the... the uh, 
uh, waterline in essence, and uh, that was the other way. So uh, that was the way bat- naval battles took place during that particular era. We've sort of set up a tale of the tape of sorts here. Uh, which ship do you think had the advantage going into the fight? Uh, I would give the, the nod to the Serapis because, as I said, it was a new ship. And the Americans had an old ship. And uh, also, uh, they had an experienced captain on board the Serapis, and a naval captain. And John Paul Jones uh, was a brave fellow and all that good stuff, but uh, he was relatively inexperienced. The crew on board the Serapis was an, a British naval crew, so therefore they're well-disciplined. Uh, they worked them very, very hard. They, they kind of knew what they're doing, versus the Americans had to find a crew in a foreign port, which was in France, and a lot of them were uh, had various allegiances and uh, not necessarily uh, from navies at all, so they, they weren't terribly... But compared to the British, were not as, as well disciplined. And also the battle was going to be taking place in the home waters of uh, the Serapis, just off the coast of, of England. But on the other hand, um, the battle was going to take place. There were four vessels in the American uh, convoy, in essence, and just two in the, uh, the British one. But only two of the vessels that were taking place were actually warships. The Serapis was designed as a warship, and there was a, the ship called the Alliance, uh, which is an American ship, was actually built in the United States in uh, Amesbury, Mass., which is toward the mouth of the Merrimack River, and that was actually built as a warship, and that was, uh, we're going to be talking about that probably a little later, but that was under the command of a French naval officer who uh, did some rather strange things. Uh, but those were the only two real uh, warships that, that took place. The others were all converted merchant ships. Take us through the battle. Well, uh, the, there are a couple of levels of this article. I wanted to say that one of the article uh, was really taken from the memoir of Nathaniel Fanning. And I took this and kind of uh, rewrote it a bit so that we could understand some of his, uh, let's say, lack of uh, literacy. So because he was an eyewitness, this is what he saw. And then there are other uh, iterations of this battle, which vary somewhat to what he saw. But anyway, we can kind of go through. Let's say that it was a kind of unique situation because... The, uh, there was a convoy of, first to start out with 50 ships from the Baltic, and then it got down to 41 ships, and they were t- it was largely being escorted by uh, the Serapis and, a, and uh, an escort ship called the Countess of Scarborough. That was not really a warship, but it was an armed merchant ship, and they were supposed to give it protection. And they got within sight of this uh, Flamberry Borough Head, which is on the western, pardon me, the eastern shore of Yorkshire. And suddenly, John Paul Jones had his little convoy of, it consisted of four ships. Uh, all of these ships uh, had, had French captains, except for uh, the Bonhomme Richard. And uh, they were saw the 
this convoy going in, they said, ah, if we get some of these ships, we can make out real well. So they decided to attack it. So then it was now getting to be toward the evening. John Paul Jones uh, started after the Serapis, and he had one of the ships called the Paulus uh, in his stern uh, going after the Serapis. And leading the ship was the... Uh, the Alliance, which was the fastest ship of them all, with its Landace, who was the uh, French captain, and he decided to go after the escort ship, the Countess Scarborough, which was not nearly heavily armed, and Jones was going to take on the Serapis, and the Paulus was in its wake, so therefore the the, uh, the other ship, which was called a Vengeance, was quite a bit farther behind, not nearly as fast. And the object of the game was to uh, sort of uh, be a little decoy in its wake. Uh, when they finally got into uh, shouting range, there was a, a lot of uh, commotion, and because the the, the uh, British ship really didn't know who, with whom they were dealing, so um, they just what they did is they uh, said, "Could you tell me who you are?" And uh, there was a lot of, uh, we'll say, uh, nastiness went, went, went back and forth. Uh, according to the, the article, it said, what ship is this? And, and Richard's response was, come a little nearer and I will tell you. And the next question is, what are you laden with? Round grape and double-headed shot. So there was, it was some sort of a challenge. And supposedly there was some firing that took place uh, thereupon. They were not too far from one another, and they would did what they call a broadside, which by, by the, which was meant that they would fire all the guns on one side of the vessel at the other vessel. And uh, because the Serapis had these large guns with 18-pound shots, um, when they fired at the uh, the Richard, they did a lot of damage and actually went right through the masts of the Richard. And at one point, shortly after it began, it actually took the ensign flag off the stern of the vessel. So therefore, the Richard was not flying the American flag during <laughs> during this engagement because it had been literally shot away. Well, what happened was they, they kept fighting back and forth. And um, actually, the uh, the Bonham Richard actually had America had pardon me had army troops on board, but they were uh, captained by uh, or would say commanded by a French army colonel. <laughs> so it was kind of a strange group that they had there. But they fired back and forth, and uh, it wasn't became very apparent that the heavy government of the uh, Serapis was piercing the hull, and the uh, the ship was starting to sink and getting in bad situations. So Jones decided that the only thing he could do is to get in close and see if he could grapple the uh, the his antagonist, and therefore he could have a boarding. But they were so close that a lot of the guns couldn't fire because there just no 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 <clears throat> there was just no 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 room to fire them, uh, and. Uh, obviously, Serapis said, ah, we want to get away from you. So they, they started to tangle up with one another. And uh, at one point, uh, 
the the captain of the, this Pearson, who is the captain of the the Serapis, decides to throw an anchor down, figuring that aha, I will stop dead, and this will mean that uh, the Bonham Richard would cut loose and head toward the shore because they were only three miles offshore when all this was taking place, and therefore uh, he would get away and it would, <clears throat> boarding would not be an, an option for them. Unfortunately, they were so tangled up that what happened is once the anchor was dropped, the, uh, the vessel flipped around, and they even gave up more entangled. And uh, so they were fighting uh, each other, literally, uh, arm to arm with the, the bow and, uh, and stern kind of uh, uh, going one direction, and the bow of the other one going the other direction. And uh, the, rap the, the grapples were working rather well. Uh, they would try to f try to fire back and forth, and one of the things which was also very effective was, since this was the story of uh, Nathaniel Fanning, his job was he was up on the platform, and the illustration in the uh, article shows him and his Marines up on the platform, and they they happen to be in the main mast, his group, but they have three masts, they have three platforms, they go up there, they have muskets. Uh, they have grenades, which they were relatively crude grenades, and they would throw them down on the deck and pick off people who were on the deck below. So it was, uh, you'd be firing from above and, and firing straight through. So it was a real raucous type of uh, event. The other thing which is unique about this battle was it took place at night. Most battles take place during the day. This one, the sun went down, and the moon came up, and it was a gorgeous night, and it took place in the moonlight, but a bright full moon was shining on them. So uh, the paintings always show this uh, incredible battle, which took place in the moonlight. Well, um, when the battle first started, the, uh, the Pearson, who was the captain of the Serapis, decided that we was, he was not going to give in to this upstart American rebel, and he nailed the, uh, the ensign of the, uh, the British vessel, uh, nailed the ensign to the, the mast, in essence, so, the, so it was not going to be taken down. We are not going to be taken. So they started to fight. And then ultimately, uh, making a really, really long story short, the Alliance came by and said, aha, the Alliance had taken the other escort ship, and then they decided to join the battle. But what the, the Frenchman did, uh, uh, Pierre Landis, was he got in uh, essentially toward the bow and stern of the both vessels, rather than from the side, but right head on, and fired away, uh, doing a great deal of damage to both vessels killing a lot of Americans, killing a lot of Brits. Then he went off and reloaded and came around the other side and did the same thing. So essentially he was just uh, uh, really messing, messing things up some something fierce. <laughs> and um, also at this time, fire started on board. So the, the battle would stop and now the crews would have put out the fire because if you had a fire, no one was going to win if both vessels went up in smoke. So it was one of these things is we will shoot at each other, we'll put out the fire, then we'll shoot at each other again, and then Landis would come in and shoot at them. So it was a, a real Donnybrook that went on. Ultimately, um, uh, 
the the, the vessels sort of uh, <clears throat> were entangled, and what happened was that uh, there was a signal that was put up by uh, John Paul Jones telling essentially Landis to that I am in this, and you, you in essence stay away, identify the ship. There was no way he could not have identified the ship because one of the vessels, the uh, British vessel, was painted with uh, yellow stripes, and the American was black, so there was, you know, there's no doubt about which one was which. And uh, when finally, uh, the the famous line which was given to, uh, to to Jones was, "Have you struck yet, sir?" Said because he could not see the flag that was flying from the American ship because it had been blown away, and uh, in essence, John Paul Jones said, "I have not yet begun to fight." It's not necessarily exactly what he said. Uh, there were other. Uh, Iterations which he probably had made, but anyway, that is the thing which he, he is uh, re- renowned to have, have have said at the time. And um, according to the article which I wrote, and this is what uh, our friend Fanning said: "Is I I <clears throat> will do that when I I can fight no longer, but you shall see yours come down first. For you must know the Yankees do not haul down their colors till they are fairly beaten. So uh, that was quite a long sentence <laughs> to shout across the waters. But anyway, that's that's what uh, Fanning remembered him saying at, at this particular thing. But that uh, I have not yet begun to fight is uh, the, the famous saying of John Paul Jones. Well, in time... Um, it became evident that the uh, Serapis was, uh, was was struck badly, and uh, Jones um, said, "Are you are you going to strike?" And uh, the the captain Pearson asked his men to take down the ensign, and they wouldn't do it because there were there was a lot of gunshots taking place from this, uh, as we said, uh, up there in the the mass. So therefore, he um, had to go up and take the flag down himself, and uh, ultimately he surrendered to John Paul Jones at that point. And that is kind of the way the battle ended. It lasted about four hours and a lot of uh, back and forth uh, materials. Since you asked what went took place in the battle, you can see that just kind of hit some of the high points. What is the ultimate aftermath and outcome of this battle? Well, this was the the big, the first real uh, triumph that the Americans had taking a British war vessel off the coast within sight of Britain. Uh, and uh, this was a, a, a major um, vessel, etc. Um, and also, the uh, after the war, a couple of things happened. Uh, Landis, who had gone and, and shot everybody up, was actually relieved of command and court-martialed and disgraced in the American court sometime later. Uh, John Paul Jones became the real hero. He had done an awful lot, lot, lot of heroic things in the uh, before then, but this was probably the high point of his life. Uh, of interest at the end, which I talk about in the article, uh, when 
the British captain was going to surrender. Typically, they go on board, they give them the sword. They said, well, well done, old chap, and they have a drink, etc. And uh, ultimately, the uh, Bornheim Richard was so badly uh, shot through that it sunk later. And the Serapis became the ship that John Paul Jones now uh, was on. Uh, they were given... Uh, uh, they had to do something with this, so they ended up going to to Holland, to Trexel, the island of Trexel, where the captain was uh, essentially going to be exchanged uh, in, in Holland. And um, John Paul Jones had t- taken all of the, the, the captain's goods, essentially, on, on board so he could give it to them when he left. But he refused to accept them from John Paul Jones because he considered him a pirate and he was, you know, a rebel. So the only way he would do this is if they used an intermediary, which was one of the French captains, because France and England were recognized nations, but the United States was not. So it was an interesting uh, juxtaposition of, uh, uh, we'll say, uh, diplomatic uh, naval protocol. And uh, that was just a little aside, which was in the article, which I found kind of uh, uh, amusing and also talks a little bit about the times. What does this event reveal to us about the nature of the American Revolution at sea? Well, the... uh, most of the articles which you have in the Journal uh, of the American Revolution are not naval, mainly because there wasn't there weren't very many naval engagements. But it does show you that this was all part of it, uh, and um, that John Paul Jones uh, became a naval hero. He is buried uh, in a tomb at, at in, in Annapolis under the chapel at, at uh, the Naval Academy. His character uh, is deeply flawed, uh, but it it does show you that this was an an important thing. One of the things that's also interesting is, a little aside, uh, after the battle, Pearson, who lost the ship, surrendered to John Paul Jones, that rebel pirate, as he called him, Uh, he uh, ultimately was became a hero that he was given a knighthood because he actually fought against John Paul Jones, who everybody disliked in England. And uh, the, the, the Serapis was one of the only vessels which was lost by the British, and they renamed another vessel in the same, with the same name. It was If you lost the vessel, usually it was gone for good, but the Serapis got to live another life with another name of the British vessels. And then John Paul Jones, when he found out about uh, uh, Pearson becoming a knight, he has said, said, I'd like to meet him again in the high seas. If so, I'll make him a lord, which meant that uh, <laughs> he'd beat him again and he'd even be <laughs> ranked higher because he didn't have very much use, use for the man. So I thought that was kind of an amusing uh, anecdote having to do with the man. Lou Norton, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast 
without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.